0: So we're moving into 2 Corinthians 7 tonight, and it's always helpful, always, always, always helpful to remind ourselves that there's a train that runs past this church that I wish I could divert, but I can't. And also to remind ourselves, these this part of the Bible consists of actual letters. And I know you're like, yeah, Jeff, of course. But... Sometimes we forget. Sometimes we read the Bible as if it was written for today. When the truth is it was written to people 2,000 years ago, real people going through real issues. And so I believe, I've come to believe at least, and this is why I was trained, that we can't fully understand the Word of God if we just make it about us. If the first thing you do when you read the Bible is you say, okay, what is this saying to me today? That's not the place to start. The place to start is to say, what was that writer inspired by the Holy Spirit? What was that writer trying to say to those first people who heard him? And you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to know all there is to know uh, about the background. You can, you can discern some things just from the words in the text but try to put yourself in their shoes and think okay what what was he what was he addressing in their lives and how did they probably receive those words and then from there you say to yourself okay if that's what god was trying to accomplish back then what would that look like if he accomplished that in my life today and with 2 corinthians it's it's especially important because uh, there's a reason why the book of 2 Corinthians was written, and that's because there was a bad response to the first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, and he's writing as a pastor. He's writing to say, Okay, you've asked me about these problems in your church. Let me tell you about what you should do about those. But first, let me tell you some other problems I know about that you didn't even ask about. And you can imagine, there were, there were some in Corinth who didn't like that didn't like Paul putting his nose in where they didn't think it belonged. Who is he, after all? Just an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so there was a bad response from the Corinthians. And at some point, Paul went to visit and, and figure things out. And that didn't go well. And then, at some point, he sent Titus. Now, there's a dispute between scholars over whether there was another letter in the middle. We'll talk about that later on here in chapter 7. But at some point, he sent Titus to check up on things, and Titus came back and said, Hey, Paul, things are better. The, the, The church has come to a more healthy place. But the reason Paul's writing 2 Corinthians is he knows while the majority of the church has come around, there's still some voices of dissension. There's still some people making trouble and he wants to straighten things out. And that's why 2 Corinthians sounds so different than First. In 2 Corinthians, Paul does a lot of defending his own ministry, which is a, a position that nobody ever wants to be in. You as a parent would never want to defend your parenting and say, no, I did my best to raise these children. Uh, as, a, as a company owner, you would never have to, want to have to stand before shareholders or uh, outside auditors and say, okay, this is why I did what I did. And I can tell you that as a pastor, I don't want to have to be defensive of the decisions I make and the things that I do. And yet sometimes that happens. And it's interesting to see how Paul defends himself in 2 Corinthians. And in the course of defending himself, rather than lash out at his critics, which let's just be honest, that's what we're prone to do when we get criticized, is we fight fire with fire, and that never solves the problem ever, 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 if you can maintain your cool when you're criticized, and if you can treat them with respect, even if they're not treating you with respect, you will get so much further and you'll avoid a lot of ulcers and a lot of other bad things. So Paul, in the process of defending himself, is kind, and he continues to be a pastor. He continues to be an apostle. And we see that in chapter 7. Chapter 7 is very personal, the things Paul says. And yet at the same time, he's encouraging the Corinthians to pursue joy. And I, I'm giving a long, uh, long introduction to this because chapter 7 is one of those that if you read it on your own and, and you're not really slowing down to, ta- to pay close attention, you might just skim through it and say, okay, there was nothing in that chapter that applied to my life. It was all just personal stuff for Paul. But Paul's subject here is joy, and joy is an incredibly relevant subject for us. Because in my opinion, we live in a culture that is full of pleasure, but lacking in joy. And there's a big difference. It's not that the two are opposite. You can find joy in pleasant things. You can thank God for the pleasure He gives you in a good meal, in having good company, in uh, laughing, in beauty and comfort. You can praise God for all those things, but none of those things on their own can bring you joy because they are temporary. Once you've eaten that good meal, it's gone, and you'll never get it back, right? And that's true of of any pleasurable experience you have. You may have good memories of that time you and your family went on that beautiful trip. You may have wonderful memories of that night. You heard that incredible music, but that's only a one-time thing and it goes away. And it's almost like a drug. You you have to keep seeking more and bigger experiences if your life is founded on the pursuit of pleasure. But joy is lasting. This morning in my quiet time, I was reading Psalm 36, verse 9, and this stood out to me. It said, Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And I have one of those big study Bibles, and it said that the fountain of life means He's the source of all good things. And it occurred to me, you know, as as smart consumers, we like to cut out the middleman if we can, right? Why why buy your products from a, a, a department store if you can go buy them wholesale? Why are we trying to find our meaning and satisfaction in the things of this world that bring us temporary pleasure when we can go straight to the source of that pleasure? God created all those things that we enjoy. And so I think one of the big mistakes we make, and Christians do this too, I do this, and I'll just freely admit that. When we're down, what do we say to ourselves? I need some more pleasure. I need to get away. I need to go away on a vacation. That's, that'll solve all my problems. Getting away on a vacation is usually a good idea, but it won't solve all your problems. I need to go to a, a funny movie and just laugh my head off. That's a good idea. It won't solve all your problems. Eating a good meal? Well, that'll give you some other problems too, right? So our answer to our problems, to our downheartedness, is let me do something enjoyable. And that doesn't work. Why not go instead to the one who brings joy, who is the source of all good things? So in other words, our goal shouldn't be, I need to get more pleasure into my life. It should be, I need to get more Jesus into my life. And and don't make that into uh, something that says, okay, you can never do anything but read the Bible and pray all the time. All I mean is, you should strive to know Him better. That's the surest answer I know to having a more satisfying life is to strive to know him better. So, yeah, there's your unsolicited sermon, but how that relates to chapter 7. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and you might recall at at, at the end of chapter or in chapter 6 that we looked at last week, he talked about his hardships, he talked about the things he's gone through as an apostle. And then he then he says, Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, you know, stick with the the pla- the, pa- the plan and the path of God, and he'll take you the right way. And then he picks up in verse one of chapter seven. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. In other words, he sums up everything he just said in, in chapter 6 by saying, let's seek to live a godly life. That should be our goal. And you can't go wrong when that is your goal. A godly life in Christ Jesus. And then he turns to the subject of joy. And the first thing he tells us is we can have, and let me just say, chapter 7 is going to show us that joy can come in some unusual circumstances, some sources that we don't usually think of as causing joy. And the first one is, you can find joy in the midst of trouble. Verse 2, he says, "...make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you." Um, Okay. "...I have great confidence in you, I take great pride in you, I am greatly encouraged, in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds." So uh, I just realized I brought my NIV Bible instead of my ESV, but okay, uh, that's why I'm a little slow. What he's saying here, you may recall in the middle of the last chapter, he had said, we've opened our, wide our hearts to you, open wide your hearts also. And I said back, I said last week, he's telling them, listen, I'm trying to make peace with you. I'm being completely open and vulnerable with you. Don't be stubborn with me. Where well, let's meet together in the middle. Let's work this out. And he goes on that same theme here. He says, make room in your hearts for us. And then he, he gives that self-defense. We haven't wronged anyone. We haven't been corrupt. No one can accuse us of anything here. We've been above board in all our dealings. But he says, even even though I've been deeply wounded by the way you responded to me, I still take joy in the midst of this affliction. I still take joy. I still have reason to rejoice. And that's how you know it's joy. Joy is not dependent on circumstances. You can have joy in your heart even when you're weeping. You can have joy in your heart even when you're grieving. And that's really the difference between sorrow and despair. Sorrow is, I'm going through a difficult time. I'm weeping because I wish this wasn't happening. But this isn't the end of me. I've still got things to rejoice in. I know God is still at work. I know God is still doing great things. I'm still excited about life. God's gonna get me through this. Despair is, I wish God would take my life right now. Despair is, I wish I'd never been born. Despair is, I don't want to get out of bed because there's no reason to go on living. You see the difference? And probably many of us have been in that place of despair. Joy is the difference between those two. Paul, his most famous writing about joy is the whole letter of Philippians, which is why it's my favorite one of his letters because writing from prison, all he wants to talk about is joy. And he says in Philippians, I I rejoice that other people are preaching the gospel when I'm stuck here in prison, even though some of those people are are preaching just to make me look bad. They're saying, I want to build a bigger church than Paul and make him look bad. And Paul's like, okay, well, the gospel's being spread. So I rejoice. Man, I wish I had that attitude toward other preachers that I didn't like. Um, Did I say that out loud? There aren't any preachers I don't like. No, I didn't. No, that that was a total mistake. Um, He rejoices that If I die here in prison, if they they take my head, I'm going to be with Jesus immediately. He rejoices in that. He rejoices that if they don't kill me, they're going to let me go, and then I get to be with you again. So either way, I win. He rejoices that God has shown him the secret of being content. Remember, he's writing to the Philippians, basically a thank you note. Thank you that you've sent me this gift to, to meet my needs here in prison But you know what? Even if you hadn't, I'd be okay. Because Jesus has taught me the secret of being content. Paul says, man, that is such a great gift to have. He rejoices that the Philippians, his friends, are generous. He rejoices in everything. In Jesus, there's always a reason to rejoice. So that's his first point. In all my troubles, I am overflowing with joy. Verse 5, he says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more." So the second reason Paul rejoices here is there's joy in answered prayer. And you might say, well, that that should be obvious. But let me ask you the question. How many times have you celebrated an answer to prayer? What we typically do is when a prayer is answered, we may say a quick thank you to God and then we move on with our list because there's something else to talk to him about. Can you imagine having a relationship with someone who treats you the way we treat God? Someone who comes to you and and says, oh man, I am in a situation here. I I don't know what to do. You're you're smarter about these things than I am, so can you come help? And and you go and you, you take time out of your day and you lose sleep, you give up, you sacrifice greatly, and you fix their problem, whatever it might be. And they say, okay, thanks. Now let me ask you about something else. Can you imagine? And yet that's exactly what we do to God. Paul refuses to fall into that trap. He wants to tell the Corinthians, I was miserable, I was distressed, I was worried. And and by the way, uh, personally, it does my heart good to know that the Apostle Paul was upset to know that somebody was mad at him. Because that's not the reputation that we think of when we think of Paul. We think of him as being this hard as nails guy who just read people the riot act, and didn't care. But it turns out, when there's this church full of Christians that he loves, who are mad at him, it hurts him. And I'm glad to know that. Paul says, I was distressed. I was brokenhearted over our relationship. And then Titus came back, and I had this double pleasure. First of all, the pleasure of getting my friend Titus back, which back in those days, that's nothing you could take for granted. Somebody goes off on a trip by foot, there's, there's no guarantee they're going to make it back safely. He sees his friend Titus and he rejoices. Thank you, Lord, for delivering him back to me, my trusted friend, my son in the face. But then even more, when Titus gave him the report that said, guess what, Paul? Some of those people who couldn't even say your name without spitting, now they remember what you've done for them. Now they want to see you again. Now they call you brother again. And that brought Paul joy. And he didn't want to let that pass. He didn't want to move all the way over to, okay, now let me address those people who still don't like me. No, he wanted to take time to praise God for answering his prayer in this. And, and by the way, in case anybody here or, or watching at home uh, thinks to themselves, now, now, we shouldn't worry about what others think of us, should we? We shouldn't worry about impressing people, that's true. And it's also true that anybody who tries to keep everybody happy or try to make everybody like them, they're not headed down the right path. But our relationships with people matter to God. And if they didn't matter to God, He wouldn't have said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers, right? He wouldn't have told us over and over again how important unity is within the body of Christ. He wants us to get along. He wants us to live together in peace and to love one another. So when Titus shows up, his report brings Paul joy and relief, and he praises God. So let me ask you again, how much time do you spend thanking God for specific answers to prayers? How much time do you spend telling other people, let me tell you about what God did? Because that's important. Uh, let me recommend a book to you. It's not, uh, it's not a commonly read book among lay people, but it's called, uh, The Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Now, I don't know a lot about Richard Foster. I'll, I know that he's a Quaker, so probably a lot of his theology and mine probably don't agree. But what he does in this book is he, he tells us spiritual disciplines that people, Christians, have used throughout the centuries that have drawn them closer to God. Growing up in a Baptist church, the only spiritual disciplines I knew of were going to church and reading the scriptures and praying. But he talks about these disciplines I had never heard of. Solitude and, and celebration. I remember there's a whole chapter on the discipline of celebration, and I thought, well, I don't need to read that. I know how to celebrate. But it's not about throwing a party. It's about literally finding ways to make to to. Spend time celebrating what God has done. How often do we do that? How often do we say, invite our friends over and say, I just wanted to have you all over for some hamburgers and to just tell you a story about what God's done in my life lately because it's just too good to keep to myself. And that would that would do your heart good and it would bless them as well. It would encourage them to pray and it wouldn't hurt that you're feeding them hamburgers, right? So. Take joy in those answered prayers. Don't gloss over them. And then in verse eight, here's the longest section of the chapter. He talks about joy as the outcome of sorrow, how sorrow can produce joy. Verse eight, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Now, let me just pause and say, as I said earlier, this is where there's a little bit of a controversy among New Testament scholars. So like I said, in between First and Second Corinthians, we know that Paul went and visited and it didn't go well because he refers to that in 2 Corinthians. But a couple of different times he talks about, I sent you this grievous letter, this sorrowful letter. Um, he previously mentioned it in chapter 2, verse 4. He said, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And there's a dispute among scholars is the, when he's t- saying that here and in verse 8? Is he talking about 1 Corinthians? Is that the letter he's talking about? And there are some scholars who say, well, that wasn't a sorrowful letter. There was a lot of praise in that. There were were good things as well as bad. And so they speculate that there's a letter Paul wrote that we don't have anymore. It just, you know, in the Holy Spirit's wisdom, it didn't make it into the scriptures. It was a letter that Paul wrote to basically ream them out and, and, and tell them to straighten up or fly right as my mom used to tell me when i was little um and others say no no it's just talking about first corinthians so i say that not that i have not because i have any answers but just so you understand it's one of two things when paul says when i'm when i even if i made you grieve with my letter notice what he says though next though i did regret it for i see that that letter grieved you though only for a while what he's saying is when I first sent the letter and I heard that it hurt your feelings, it made me sad. But then I got over it and I realized this sadness is a good thing. Now, how can sadness be a good thing? Verse verse nine, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Think. you. Remember that sentence. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So Paul's saying, you've shown me that everything I was upset with you about I can forget everything's fine now verse 12 so although I wrote to you it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong but in order that in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God therefore we are comforted and besides our comfort we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all for whatever boasts I made to him about you I was not put to shame but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. So there at the end, what he's saying is, Thank you for being kind to my friend. He said, I believed in you. I had all confidence you would treat him well. I wondered deep down inside if Paul was thinking, I didn't have total confidence though. After the way you treated me, there was a part of me that was a little worried that my young friend would go down there and get his lunch eaten. But Titus comes back and and I find out you've been kind to him. Thank you. But the main thing Paul is saying, and this is what I want you to see, is there's a difference between worldly grief and godly sorrow. Another way of saying worldly grief, I think, is guilt. There's a difference between guilt and godly sorrow. What is the difference? Well, the difference is in what it produces. Guilt produces nothing but feelings of alienation, of worthlessness. Godly sorrow produces repentance, a desire to change. It's sort of like the difference between good parenting and bad parenting. Good discipline and bad discipline as a, as a mom or dad. And, and you know, if you've ever raised kids, you know no parent ever gets this one 100% correct. And if you've never raised kids, but you've been a kid, you know that your parents didn't get it 100% correct. But there are times when a parent punishes a child and it doesn't do any good. They're they're not trying to produce change. They're just taking out frustration. They're, they're, They're hammering that child down because that child has gotten on my nerves or has become an inconvenience to me, or even worse, I'm just taking out my frustration over something else on somebody who's smaller than me that I can put in their place. I can't do that to my boss, but I'll do it to you, right? I can't do that to the guy on the freeway, but I'll do it to this child. And that's a tragedy. And that's why there are children who are still recovering from their childhood because they had parents that did that more often than not. That's that's what we call worldly sorrow. That's, That's inflicting guilt. That's stealing someone's joy and telling them you're not worth anything. But godly sorrow, is when that child is made to think, I wish I hadn't done that. I never wanna do that again. Not just because you got a pop on the backside or because you didn't get to go to the party or you got whatever taken away from you, but because you genuinely see this is a bad decision and I never wanna do that again. And if you had good parents, like I had good parents, you can probably think of times where that happened in your childhood. Where in the, in the moment, you were just full of yourself and you were going to do what you wanted to do, and then looking back, you thought, oh, what a fool I was. I wish I hadn't done that. I mean, here I am, the age I am, and I can still kind of feel some of those emotions of times that I did things and said things and wishing I could go back in time and, and do them differently. Things that, thank God, I'm sure my parents don't even remember. Godly sorrow produces repentance. And believe it or not, we should rejoice when we go through that kind of sorrow because it's going to produce something good in us. And that's all Paul's saying here. I hated to send you that letter. I I knew that it would hurt you. And when I heard how it hurt you, it it broke my heart. And yet what got me through it was knowing what the Holy Spirit was going to do with that godly sorrow because I knew that it was written out of love. I knew that it was the truth and the Holy Spirit was in it and He was going to change your hearts if you just responded with repentance. And that's our part. That's that's where we come in. There are things that happen in our lives that we didn't bring on ourselves necessarily, or maybe we did. But either way, things we didn't choose, and they, they bring sorrow to our lives, and we can either rage against heaven, feel sorry for ourselves, or we can say, okay, God, how can this sorrow turn into godly sorrow? How can this sorrow produce some fruit in me? And that's the place we need to be. Romans eight twenty eight still stands. God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Doesn't mean everything always works out the way we want it to in the end. But it does mean that whatever the world throws at us, God can take it and say, yeah, I can work that into my plan. I can bring that into something that's going to make this person better than he or she was before. God always gets the last laugh over the devil unless we choose to let the devil win. So with all of that, let me just ask you, when was the last time you repented for a lack of joy? I don't know many Christians who've done that. I've heard Christians confess all manner of sins, but I don't know many. Actually, I can't think of any who've ever come to me and said, my problem is I'm just a big old sourpuss. I just, you know, I'm just always griping. And, And there's Christians who need to confess that. They need to say, I just don't have enough joy in my life to represent Christ well. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I'm trying to produce godly sorrow because you're missing out on life. How many times have you ever said, Lord, forgive me for my indulging in self-pity. I've just been sitting here moping all day when I've got every reason in the world to be thankful. We ought to do that. We ought to say that to God and to the people who know us because they've had to suffer watching us mope around the house the whole day or around the office all day too. We need to say, I'm sorry I have been acting like a fool um, have you ever actually asked Jesus come and teach me joy show me how to be a joyful person I want to have I want my cup to run over like it says in, in Psalm 23 and have you ever intentionally celebrated when you really didn't feel like it I don't mean phoniness don't don't hear me to say that When you're struggling and you let people know, the people who love you, that is a good thing to do. When you weep so we know that you need us to help bear your burdens, that is a good thing. What I'm talking about is, have you ever just sat down and said, okay, lots of things are going wrong right now. I'm just going to write down a list of the things that are going right. Just so I know God is still at work. And then once I'm done with that list, I'm going to write down some things that I think I can see Him doing through this time. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that comes naturally to us, but it, it 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 could actually save your life. Could get you through that time in a way that glorifies you. I, I have a friend. I um, went to college with him. He's he is. Um, I would describe him as a sanctified goofball. Um, he's one of those guys. He's just. He is sold out for Jesus, but he is a hes a goober. You know, he just is. And he found out about a month ago that he has lung cancer that has spread to various parts of his body. And it was just a bolt out of the blue. I mean, he had no idea this was coming. And I just have felt led to pray for him as he's going through all these treatments right now. Uh, I've just felt led to pray for him and his wife that, Lord, you know, work a miracle in his life I pray that he would be healed. Only you know if that's going to happen or not. But whether he's healed or not, I keep praying, let him continue to have that much joy as he's always had, because what a testimony that's going to be to everybody. I mean, all those nurses and doctors who deal with him, all the church members who rally around him. And, and when they see that he hasn't lost that infectious joy, that goofiness that has made him so lovable, what a what a witness to everybody, to his kids. He's my age, so he has grown kids. They're, they need to see that. They need to see that you know, nothing has stolen what Jesus put inside their dad. So I keep praying for that. And so far, from what I've seen on you know, just on Facebook, it, it's continuing to happen. Um, so pray for my friend Scott and his wife Regina. Pray for uh, yourself as we go through this world and pray for joy. Well, let's pray. Lord God, uh, I didn't, I wasn't even planning to talk about Scott. You know that. Um, I hope that was okay. Pray that you would bless him and, and Regina, and, and we do pray for a miracle in his life an, uh, an absolute healing that baffles all the medical people who've been treating him. Uh, but either way, I pray that his joy would remain constant and that he would have that consistent hope that would speak volumes to everyone who sees him, that would be what, uh, what she needs to see and what her, their kids need to see and, and everybody else. Lord, most of us in this room hopefully aren't going through anything quite so severe now, but whatever we're going through, help us to walk in joy to celebrate the many things you've done for us and the things you're doing and to have faith enough in you to realize and to even rejoice in the things you're going to do, even through our difficulties. For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.